Hi, I'm Mitch. And I'm Mel. This is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show diving into all things related to policy analysis in international affairs. Let's begin today's show with a quick roundup of some interesting developments in current foreign policy. Mitch? We begin today's episode with policy news from our American counterparts, specifically the American withdrawal from the Paris Agreement. The United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord Thank you. Thank you. But begin negotiations to re-enter either the Paris Accord or in really entirely new transaction on terms that are fair to the United States, its businesses, its workers, its people, its taxpayers. So we're getting out. On June 2nd, President Trump announced the United States' intent to withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement. This comes on the heels of last month's G7 summit, where the U.S. declined to join other nations in reaffirming its commitment to the agreement. So if we examine the policy implications of this decision, we're presented first with a, with a surprising development, at least to some, and that being the speed and forcefulness of action at state and municipal levels to step in and take leadership on climate change action. Uh, we've also seen in the private sector business leaders uh, voicing their continued intent to push clean and environmentally friendly technologies with or without federal support. Critics of the Trump administration would argue that what has happened is now furthering the erosion of U.S. leadership and of its soft power at a global level. So some questions to ask are, is the U.S. harming the perception of the West's ability to tackle global issues like climate change? And will other countries of the G7 fill this void, and will they be able to take leadership? And even looking beyond the G7, what about other countries uh, stepping in to fill that void, one of which being China? Some are speculating that the U.S. retreat on uh, on many levels is allowing China an increased role on the world stage. And we even have reportedly at the G7 summit, the new French president, Monsieur Macron, saying that in effect, now China leads on this issue. And it raises questions. Is the G7, presumably without the, the US on this point, so the G6, ready to work with China on climate change and other global issues? And ultimately, can the Paris Agreement survive without US participation? Shifting our attention over to the Middle East, on June 5th, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Bahrain, and the UAE announced they were officially cutting off diplomatic ties with the state of Qatar. Now, the government of Saudi Arabia, who initiated this action, justified it by claiming that they had evidence to prove that the Qatari government was sponsoring terrorist groups such as the Islamic State, Hamas, and the Muslim Brotherhood. These are claims that the Qatari government denies. So what does this mean? What are the implications? 
Well, to start, many believe that this action is evidence of the fact that the Saudi government feels now emboldened to greater action in the region following a recent visit by President Trump. And this is supported by the fact that Trump came out a few days after the diplomatic rift occurred and criticized the Qatari government for funding terrorism at a high level. The situation in Qatar also essentially represents further division in the, re uh, the region as both Turkey and Iran have rushed to the aid of Qatar, um, both with the provision of Turkish troops and food aid coming from Iran. And some analysts are viewing this as a rise in tension between the major regional powers, those being Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and Iran, to increase their influence and control. So that's certainly something that will need to be watched closely over the coming months. Absolutely. And another thing is this diplomatic crisis has resulted in the closing of Qatar's only land border and it has led to the denial of airspace in Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and UAE. And this could have several economic impacts. For example, could have a significant impact on Qatar Airways, which is one of the world's largest airline companies. Uh, it could also impact preparations for the 2022 World Cup. But more broadly, this could be seen as the lead up to a major economic crisis in the region. And lastly, in our policy roundup today, we turn our attention to Canada. It was quite an exciting few days last week for Canadian policy enthusiasts as the government released new policies that will dictate Canada's global engagement for the foreseeable future. Highlights include a significant increase in defense spending over the next decade and a reoriented international assistance policy primarily focused on advancing gender equality and the empowerment of women and girls. And with our increase of $650 million for sexual and reproductive health and rights, we are closing the gap. We are doubling, actually, the usual investment of Canada in this sector because we strongly believe that we have to offer the full range of sexual and reproductive health and rights. So if we analyze the implications of all of these policy announcements last week, I mean, to begin with, in her speech in the House of Commons last week, the Minister of Foreign Affairs reaffirmed the Canadian government's commitment to multilateral institutions and free trade. Now, while he wasn't specifically mentioned by name, the speech was clearly a response to the action or inaction, I suppose, depending on your perspective, of the Trump administration on the world stage. Moving forward, it'll be interesting to see how Canadian foreign policy diverges from our American counterparts and how that will affect our relationship. In positioning the new international assistance policy as a feminist policy, it's clear that the government aims to position Canada as a gender equality leader on the international stage. Doing so undoubtedly impacts the decisions of who will receive Canadian assistance, what initiatives the assistance will target, and how it will be delivered. And again, if we particularly focus in on the defense policy um, that was announced first, followed by the international assistance policy last week, the specific details present a sobering dichotomy in terms of funding. While defense is touting cash-based spending growth of over 70% over the next decade, the new feminist international assistance policy effectively proposes no new funding. Now, depending on how you believe Canada can best exert its influence as a middle power, this will likely dictate whether you're for or against this, this decision. But regardless, it will be an interesting policy position to follow in the coming years. This leads us right into our main topic. Today, we're going to be talking about the humanitarian crisis in South Sudan. Now, South Sudan gained independence from Sudan in July 2011, following decades of civil war. Since its inception, South Sudan has had a tenuous political climate. In 2013, civil war broke out, 
when President Salva Kiir accused his vice president and party deputy, Riek Machar, of orchestrating a coup d'etat. Both Kiir and Machar were of the same political party, that is, the Sudan People's Liberation Movement, the SPLM. So when the party was split between Machar, who is an ethnic Nur, and Kiir, who is an ethnic Dinka, it split along ethnic lines. And this conflict has created a significant humanitarian crisis in South Sudan, marked by violence, famine, and displacement. And, you know, just to give you some stats, from February to April of this year, an estimated 4.9 million people were severely food insecure, with this number expected to increase to 5.5 million by July. South Sudan is experiencing the largest refugee crisis in Africa and the third largest in the world. The total number of refugees and asylum seekers from South Sudan has been placed at 1.8 million. Children make up 62% of more than 1.8 million South Sudanese refugees who have arrived mainly in Uganda, Kenya, and Sudan. And even within the borders of South Sudan, the country is experiencing significant internal displacement. And civilians have been forced to endure targeted attacks, gender-based violence, kidnappings, murder, and burning and pillaging of homes and livestock. This extremely fragile and violent situation makes it difficult, virtually impossible, to distribute aid effectively. So that's what we're examining today. Is there a solution to the crisis? How did it get to this point? And to help us answer these questions, we're pleased to be joined by Melanie Gallant, head of media relations at Oxfam Canada, who has covered a vast portfolio of national and international issues and projects, including the recent Ebola crisis in West Africa and the Syrian refugee settlements in Lebanon's Bekaa Valley. Melanie Galland, thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you very much for having me. So we're going to jump right in. The famine and humanitarian crisis in South Sudan is, has been labeled um, as man-made. Uh, can you take us through what led to the situation becoming so extreme in this country? Yes, absolutely. Um, well, first of all, I'd like to say that we prefer using the term human-made, not man-made. Um, just to just to give a broader perspective, mm-hmm. but but it's definitely human made for sure. Um, what we're seeing in South Sudan, um, we're seeing this catastrophic humanitarian crisis after three years of a brutal civil war. Um, we're talking about five million people, about forty percent of the population are facing extreme hunger at the moment, um, and a hundred thousand people, so the most vulnerable are classified um, as as being at risk of famine, so dying of starvation. Um, And the reason that this conflict is really what has been fueling um, and leading up to to this humanitarian crisis is because civilians have been attacked, schools and hospitals have been looted and burned. Um, We're talking about millions of people, over 3 million people who have been displaced with their homes. And of course, while people are fleeing their homes, uh, they're losing their possessions, but they're also losing their crops. Um, they're losing their income. So they're really unable to support themselves and their families. Um, and even if they are moving to safer areas without um, income to purchase things, if the markets are still operating, um, which is not the case in many areas, um, and not having food uh, and not having a plot of land to grow food themselves, they're really reliant upon food distribution and aid, um, which in some reasons, regions, because of access, is not available. So we're definitely seeing displacement has been fueling a lot of um, a lot of the humanitarian situation in South Sudan, particularly. So as you've just covered, this is a very 
fragile and complex situation on the ground. So what has been the general international response to this crisis? Is there a kind of a coordinated multilateral effort or a set of policies that guide how the assistance is being distributed and managed? Delivering aid in South Sudan and other countries is always a collective effort between different NGOs. Um, working with local partners is very important uh, to keep in mind uh, that you need people you know, from, uh, from the areas in order to link with communities. We always want to make sure that the voices of South Sudanese are at the centre of our response to make sure that we're assessing needs properly and delivering aid in the best way possible. Um, so NGOs and local partners, of course, we also work with United Nations agencies. Um, there's a lot of coordination that happens on the ground to ensure that we're not duplicating efforts and that we're well coordinated in delivering aid and to make sure that our response is as efficient as possible. Um, of course, we also work with governments. Um, we depend on governments for a large part of funding. Uh, in order to be able to deliver the aid. And we also, um, you know, just to mention, we also depend on on the public for donations. So there is an, an amount of coordination that happens on the ground. And also um, what is very important in the case of South Sudan, given that this is a political conflict, um, and ultimately ultimately what the people of South, Sudanese, South Sudan need is peace. They need to be able to return home, return to their lives, you know, grow food, um, send their kids to school. And uh, this isn't happening because of the protracted crisis. So agencies are also getting together and calling on the international community to put pressure on the government and on the opposition groups uh, to stop the violence and, and to allow the country to come back to peace. So we also have a lot of coordination that happens in terms of advocacy and campaigning and, and really bringing that story to the public and to the international community. So you touched on the importance of um, working with local partners um, in coordinating the, the efforts in South Sudan. And I was wondering, could you give us a sense of um, sort of your assessment or Oxfam's assessment of the um, local capacity of, of CSOs in the, in, in the country? Uh, in what condition are the, is the infrastructure and institutions in South Sudan? Um, is it in a is it in an effective position to really um, uh, have an influential role in how assistance is being uh, dispersed in the country? They're faced with an incredibly difficult situation. If I can use an example from Oxfam programming, we have a longer term development program um, running in South Sudan, and it was quite successful. But with renewed violence last summer in July. Um, some of our own staff and, and some of our local partners had to stop working on the project because of their own, for, for fear of their own safety. Uh, so definitely conflict is something that is affecting local people um, as much, if not more, than any uh, Oxfam staff or international workers whom are there. So the situation is quite difficult for them um, in terms of their safety, in terms of speaking out about different issues, um, depending on where they're located. So, so safety is a big concern at the moment. However, Oxfam and many other agencies are continuing to work with local actors and to build capacity for them to um, be able to act, to be able to respond. And oftentimes what you'll see is that local responders are first responders 
Um, so they're really on the front lines of that. But unfortunately, because of conflict and because of, of the hunger situation that they might find themselves in, being affected by the situation, um, their capacity to act is, is, is reduced. I imagine working with local partners is, is a key factor for being able to access these, these especially vulnerable populations that are in need of the assistance being delivered. I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit uh, to any of the challenges that there are with accessing these populations who are in most need. Yeah, access is one of the biggest issues that we're faced with in South Sudan, unfortunately. Um, it can be because of safety concerns, because conflict uh, and violence break out in certain regions, and we're not able to access um, different areas uh, because, you know, we might be shot at or, or might be subject to other uh, forms of, of violence. So that's one reason. But oftentimes it's also for, it can be for bureaucratic reasons. Um, so we often have to, you know, spend time calling on either the government or the forces who are, you know, in charge in that area um, to allow for humanitarian access. Um, so one of the main messages that we keep repeating um, within South Sudan and to the international community is that, you know, starvation shouldn't be a conflict tactic. So, so definitely, you know, calling on getting that access um, is, is one of the main things that we deal with. What can make it also difficult, and we're coming up on this issue at the moment, um, we're entering the rainy season in South Sudan, and this is a country that has, you know, undeveloped infrastructure in much of the country. So we're talking about dirt roads, um, very little paved roads and communities that are quite difficult to access, so very remote communities um, under normal circumstances, but also because people have been displaced and some people are living in swamps um, and eating water lilies to survive. So they've gone to the places where they feel they will be the safest and oftentimes these places are, are very hard to get to. With the rainy season starting, this access will be even more difficult we're talking about roads that might be, you know, washed out or, or in incredibly deep, muddy conditions that will make accessing uh, people much more difficult. Can you, Melanie, can you give us a sense of uh, internally within Oxfam's um, programming? Um, what specific, or if you could give us some some specific examples of the types of projects or or or, or challenges that. Oxfam is specifically addressing in South Sudan? Well, so we work on different levels. Um, obviously, we work on emergency food distribution. Um, since we are talking about a hunger crisis and a famine in certain areas, there is a lack of food. Uh, so we work with um, the World Food Program, with other agencies to deliver emergency food to people. But in addition to that, and this is something that we often don't think of um, when we hear hunger or famine, we don't always think of water and sanitation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, malnutrition is caused by lack of proper nutrition from not having enough to eat, but it's also about lack of hygiene and safe water. So that's a big part of what Oxfam is doing in South Sudan at the moment. So we're distributing fresh water to people. Um, or where it's possible looking at alternatives uh, like drilling boreholes um, or having certain water pipe systems installed. Um, so delivering fresh water, but also ensuring that there's a lot of education 
um, with the population regarding keeping the water safe from contamination. Because a lot of the times what will happen is water will get contaminated with bacteria causing cholera, for example, or diarrhea. Between the time that people get the water at a water source and get back to their tent or, um, or, or their dwelling and actually use the water because they, they put their hands in the water or they use cups that haven't been cleaned properly um, or, or even transport the water in a container that might be contaminated. So we make sure um, to provide people with the tools that they need. We have, um, Oxfam has actually designed a bucket, the Oxfam bucket, which is made specifically to keep water free from contamination. People can use it to get the water, but it also has um, a, a removable spout. So you don't actually have to put um, cups or recipients inside the bucket to get the water. Um, so, so, it's, so it really helps to keep that water clean. We also talk a lot about hand washing and distribute essential hygiene items like soap, um, disinfectant, and and other types of, of supplies that way. So water and sanitation is really a big part of what we're doing mm-hmm. uh, in the hopes of preventing cholera and diarrhea and other waterborne diseases, which are present in almost every county at the moment in South Sudan. And when you see, you know, it, it goes hand in hand. So malnutrition, hunger, famine go hand in hand, oftentimes with waterborne diseases like those. Um, so that's a really big part of our work. What we're also doing, um, and, and it's really important to talk about this, and this is something that um, we keep doing as much as possible. So we're responding in an emergency um, with emergency food, supplies, water, sanitation. But we also want to keep operating in terms of, of longer-term development programming. So programming in areas that are perhaps a bit more stable but are increasing the resilience of communities, are working with, um, with women's groups to teach them how to uh, grow sustainable vegetable gardens, for example. So we want that work to continue in order to avoid famine from happening in, in certain regions, because as I'm sure you can appreciate, famine doesn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something that happens over time, and there are warnings, so we don't want to see the same thing repeated in other regions. Right. Before we move on, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to have more with Melanie Galland. You're listening to Policy Talks Podcast, recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, go to www.policytalkspodcast.com. just wanted to circle back you had mentioned the uh, the Oxfam bucket I believe is what you, is that is that what you called it the Oxfam bucket yes the Oxfam um, bucket okay well that just sparks something in my mind about about the importance of innovate uh, excuse me innovation in uh, humanitarian assistance and I was wondering if you could share with us your thoughts about the the importance of innovation where does innovation situate itself in terms of 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 priorities uh, in humanitarian assistance because obviously um, there are when you innovate, there are always risks attached, and given the sensitive nature of humanitarian assistance, that's a. I, I would assume that there's a debate surrounding that. So, do you have any thoughts on the importance of innovation in humanitarian assistance? 
The humanitarian community at the moment is really looking towards um, increasing innovation and collaborating more um, on on innovative uh, ways to provide humanitarian assistance. Um, so I think we're really at a point uh, now where we're thinking, well, the way we used to do things in the past um, might not be the best way, or perhaps given new technologies and, and new knowledge, um, we can improve and find better ways of doing things. That's not to say that innovation, and I think the mistake we often make is to think that innovation always means new technologies or very big changes. Um, from my experience, having worked um, in Sierra Leone during the Ebola crisis and, and during other humanitarian emergencies, sometimes innovation comes, uh, you know, is very simple. And oftentimes, and this is where working with local partners and hearing the voices of, of people, um, you know, from South Sudan, we're, we're talking about South Sudan, is really important because oftentimes when you listen and you analyze, you will really see, well, you know, maybe there's a different way of doing this, or maybe we're not looking, um, we're not covering these needs, and maybe there's a different way of doing it. I can use a very interesting example from South Sudan. Um, Oxfam is running a program there where we are supporting local people um, who have been displaced to swamp areas. So those are the only areas that they deem safe enough for themselves and their families. But then transportation is, is a real issue because they have, you know, up to eight hours to walk in, in bog and swamp in order even to access uh, an aid delivery point. So to even be able to receive the food aid, uh, they're so, so remote that they have, you know, this big, um, this big distance to cover in order to access aid. So we have set up a canoe program. Uh, so we are supplying some canoes to local people and have enlisted um, some community volunteers who are now operating as, you know, the, the canoe chauffeurs, if you will, and helping people go from uh, where they are in the swamp areas to food distribution points. Um, and, you, you know, people are really, really proud of operating these canoes. They have little cards indicating that they, you know, work with Oxfam and, and they can operate these canoes. And at the same time, they see how much... Di how, so what a big difference it's making in the lives of people who are struggling to get by. I, I don't think I've had recently a more proud to be Canadian moment than that. That's, 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 <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Um, Melanie, you touched briefly on the need for a political solution. So I, I guess what I want to ask you is, does it seem like there is an end in sight, you know, with, without a political solution, ending the civil war and without a local government to provide stability. Can you speak to how addressing the humanitarian issues help work towards a longer-term solution for what's happening in South Sudan? Definitely a political solution is, is, is ultimately what is needed. Without peace, this situation will keep happening. We want to move away from a situation where we need to deliver emergency aid uh, to a situation where people are able to start rebuilding their lives. Um, providing aid within the country, you know, for sure can, can help come to that point by keeping more people alive, um, also by working with local organizations who themselves are, you know, involved in different um, initiatives, you know, related to um, calling on 
on the provisional government and on um, the opposing forces to respect the ceasefire and to get back to the negotiating table. But in addition to that, um, I think aid agencies, though we're not political, um, though we're not political political actors, if you will, we do have a voice and we have a collective voice um, that can be strong. And we do call on the international community and use moments like um, like the recent G7, for example, to come together in one voice and to call attention to these issues. And I think one role uh, that NGOs and civil society play is really bringing the voices of the people being affected by the crisis to the ears of the politicians and of um, the world leaders. So really showing them um, how, how dire the situation is and how we need to act. Um, so the G7 was one example where, you know, seven of the world's most powerful uh, countries get together. Um, so, you know, many agencies were calling for an increase in aid, um, which is needed immediately um, to respond to the crisis and to prevent the country from collapsing into further famine um, and further and, and, and further crisis, but also to put pressure on on South Sudan to address the conflict. And there's other things as well, um, you know, that international community can do. Um, sales of arms, uh, you know, is, is is a big problem. So if countries, if developed, well, developed nations don't stop selling arms that are fueling these crises. Um, you know, that, that's also something that contributes to the conflict continuing. So it's not to say that there's no end in sight. I don't think anyone can necessarily answer that. Um, hopefully, you know, we're all hopeful that there is. However, you know, we definitely need to see action from the international community, from the government of South Sudan and from uh, the opposing parties for that to happen. All excellent. Thank you uh, very much. I think we'll leave it there. Um, Melanie Gallant. Uh, thank you very much for your perspective. And on behalf of everyone here at the Policy Talks podcast team, uh, we sincerely thank you for the work you and your organization are doing. Thank you very much for having me. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Policy Talks. Remember to visit us at policytalkspodcast.com and on Twitter at policytalkspod for updates and related content. If you have any feedback, comments, suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email or reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter. We also extend our thanks to our research team, Rianne Foley, Shetta Ali, Eugene So, Kenneth Boddy, our editor Megan Boisjoli, and our producer Joe Venkatesh. Until next time, I'm Mitch. And I'm Mel. This is Policy Talks. Policy Talks.